But now to Colossians 3, chapter, verse 16. Colossians 3 and verse 16. I like to think of Philippians as being uh, the Christian's life. What an amazing book. Ephesians, uh, that's the church of the Lord. God's plan for man, the New Testament church. We've had a marvelous lectureship on the New Testament church some time back. And now Colossians is the Christ. In a way, the first two chapters stress the all-sufficiency of the all-sufficient Christ. And chapters 3 and 4 emphasize the Christian's all-sufficient life in the all-sufficient Christ. And so it is from beginning to end the Christ, the Christ of glory, the Son of the living God. Colossians 3.16, Paul says, the Holy Spirit says through Paul, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto God. In the manuscript, uh, in the book, I have quite a bit of material that is a bit technical, perhaps, and uh, most likely a bit tedious, but to which are very, very important, and I encourage you to take the time in your own study sometime to look up or to pursue a study of those matters. But in the interest of the time, and the clock's right here, and Brother Tom's right over there, and I want to skip over a considerable portion of the first few pages, or remarks at least, except to try to summarize that material in this way, that Christians are in this passage enjoined to let the word of Christ indwell their hearts, their very lives, a key word, indwell. In oikeo, except here it's in the imperative form. And this indwelling of the word in the hearts of the Christians will result in their singing. The singing of the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs. By means of these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, the teaching and the admonishing will take place. Teaching is from the root word dedasco, which means to teach, to instruct, to instill doctrine. Admonishing, that's from the root word nutheteo, which means to admonish, it may mean to warn, it may mean to exhort. This tells us a great deal about what God intends for us to do in our singing, such a tremendously important part of our worship. We confidently affirm that Colossians 3.16 gives some very valuable information about our singing. We note them as follows. Number one, singing is authorized to be employed in Christian worship. Christian is, singing is authorized to be employed in the worship assembly 
of God's people. We call attention to the plural you, the Greek human. You may want to make a special note in your own notations. Thayer says about the human, it means in your assembly, and when he says that, he cites specifically Colossians 3.16. The human in your assembly. Colossians 3.16, there, page 217, under the word in oikeo. And then we have the one another, the heatus, one another. We have three plural participles. All of these absolutely demand congregational singing. And yet we're hearing some uh, argue or suggest the idea that congregational singing is not authorized. The Lord himself said in Hebrews 2.12, in the midst of, or is quoted there, in the midst of uh, the congregation, or you may have the word church, in the midst of the assembly, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. Singing, as God demands it, is the product of the indwelling word of the Christ in the hearts of those who sing. We want to improve the singing. Let's get more of the inspired word in human hearts. The singing is the natural outgrowth of that indwelling of the word in the Christian's hearts. Our singing is directed to God, according to this passage. Our singing must be done in honest and sincere, in an honest and sincere and grateful attitude with thanksgiving. In our singing, we are to teach, to instruct, to admonish, to warn, to encourage, to exhort, to edify. These are purposes involved in and accomplished by our singing. We direct attention to the fact that we are instructed in this passage specifically to sing. We're not instructed to play. We're not instructed to hum. I find just as much authorization in Scripture for the mechanical instrument of music as I do for a humming. There just isn't any. God didn't say hum. He didn't even say make vocal music. He said sing. I can whistle and make vocal music. He didn't say whistle. I can cry and make vocal, not music, but something vocal. He didn't say cry, but he did say sing. And in the very next verse, Colossians 3.17 we're instructed to be careful to do everything that we do in the name of the Lord. In the name of means by the authority of the Lord or as the Lord authorized. And we have a great deal of information about our song service in Colossians 3.16. Right now and from this point on, I shall be proceeding according to assignment given me specifically under the title of a cappella singing in Colossians 3.16. 
and the editors or the arrangers of this lectureship ask me specifically to deal with the matter of biblical authority. And I appreciate Brother Warren's great lesson this morning, especially from the viewpoint that it's the natural introduction to what we will continue to look at tonight and will save us a great deal of time on the matter of implication. But we pick up right quickly the basic authority principle. The basic authority principle. The New Testament sets out a basic principle in relationship to biblical authority or how God authorizes. Whatever we do and word are indeed must be authorized by the Lord. We must give thanks unto God the Father through him. We've already indicated in the name of means by the authority of. And if you want the documentation on that, we suggest Acts 4 and especially verses 7 through 10. The Sanhedrin said that to Peter and John, In whose name does this man, by what authority have you enabled this man to stand here before you or with you hold? Peter said, if you want to know in whose name or by whose authority this man stands here whole, be it known unto you that it's in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And so we confidently affirm that in the name of means by the authority of. In the name of Christ is by the authority of the Christ. Everything that we do, not some things, everything that we do, in word or in deed, not just in the worship assembly, in word or in deed. Do all according to the authority of the Lord. Christians recognize and understand and respect the fact that the Bible says we walk by faith. And then the same book stresses, Romans ten seventeen, that biblical faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. But if 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith, Romans 10, 17 says faith comes from hearing the word of Christ, then even I can figure out that these two points together mean that we walk, if we expect to be pleasing in God's sight, we walk by that which comes by hearing the word of Christ. And furthermore, I can figure out that if that's the case, then where there is no word of Christ, there can be no faith. And the record states it explicitly that without faith it's impossible to please God. And so we call that the basic authority principle. It must be authorized. Faith comes by hearing the word. We walk by that faith. Where there is no word, there is no faith. And without faith it's impossible to please God. How many problems this simple little principle would forever preclude, or if they already exist, would solve if we simply respect these few passages that relate to a basic authority principle. May we suggest, secondly, that God does not tolerate unauthorized worship. It is not pleasing to God. It will not be accepted by God. God does not tolerate unauthorized worship. We've already stressed that whatever we offer to God must be offered according to or offered according to God's expressed 
will. If it's not authorized, then it's not acceptable to him. The mere fact that something is intended to be worshipped doesn't prove that that something offered will be acceptable to God. And we cite Genesis 4, verses 2 through 5. Cain's, at least what he intended to be worshipped, unto God was not acceptable to God. And furthermore, the Old Testament Israel, God explained in detail through the prophet Malachi that their sacrifices were not acceptable to him. In fact, God said, Malachi, tell them to offer that kind of a sacrifice to the governor and see if he'll take it. God said, I won't accept their sacrifices. Malachi 1.8. The Lord applied Isaiah's prophecy to the Pharisees when he said, But in vain do they worship me, teaching for their doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15.9. The Old Testament often uses the word strange in the sense of simply not acceptable to God because not authorized by him. Take your concordance, go through the Old Testament sometimes, study that word strange, and observe that that is the case. Not authorized by God, not acceptable to God because it wasn't authorized. Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire before the Lord, which the Lord he, the Lord, commanded them not. Leviticus 10.1 There went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Leviticus 10.2 King Solomon married some strange women. That doesn't mean that they were peculiar or weird. He married wives which he was not authorized to marry. Strange women, women whom God had not authorized him to marry. This same kind of sin was a great problem in the days of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13, 27. Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them had gone after strange flesh. Jude, verse 7. We're warned about being carried away with strange doctrines. Hebrews 13, Verse 9. And to pick up an illustration which I've heard Brother Thomas Warren mention many times, and which I also have made many, many times, having learned it back in the early 50s from him, his illustration uh, along this line, that we must be exceedingly careful to try to stay on the mountaintop of biblical authority. The church of the Lord has always been plagued by the problems of anti-ism and liberalism. Anti-ism makes laws that God did not make. Liberalism disregards laws that God did make. Anti-ism treats matters of opinion as if they were matters of faith. Liberalism treats matters of faith as if they were matters of opinion. Anti-ism seeks to bind where God did not bind. Liberalism seeks to loose where God has bound. But in backing away from antheism, many people fall into the throes of liberalism. In backing away from liberalism, many people fall into the throes of antheism. We must be exceeding careful not to fall off that 
biblical mountain of Bible authority on either side. There's death and destruction on both sides. We've got to stay on the mountaintop. And that means we must know something about. In fact, we must know a lot about how God authorizes. We must know how God authorizes and we must know how God does not authorize. I want to glance at, without taking time to study, I want to glance at it for your further study, simply to get it before us in this capsule form, how God does not authorize. Unlikely we do not need to argue the case, at least for the most part. God does not authorize by my personal likes and dislikes. I perhaps like to do many things that I know God has said to thou shall not. God doesn't authorize upon the basis of what pleases me. That's a problem in the religious world in general. I'm going to have it. I don't want you to convince me it's wrong because I like it. That's not the basis upon which God authorizes. I like buttermilk and cornbread, but I can't put it in the Lord's Supper. That's not the basis upon which God authorizes. God doesn't authorize upon the basis of erroneous conclusions that I may reach. And I tried to say that real careful. I recognize it's possible for a human being to get the right conclusion, but I'm recognizing that Deaver can make a mistake in that connection, but I can find it. There are ways, there are processes. I can get the wrong answer to a math problem, but there are words, there are processes by which I can determine what's wrong, what the correct uh, answer is. God doesn't authorize upon the basis of my opinion or the opinions of others. He doesn't authorize upon the basis of what's popular. He doesn't authorize upon the basis of what may be the consensus of somebody's lectureship. He doesn't authorize upon the basis of what some well-known and highly respected brother teaches or may have taught. He doesn't authorize upon the basis of my inability to see no harm in it. Oh, but I just don't see any harm in it. That doesn't settle the matter. He doesn't authorize upon the basis of the practices of long-standing he doesn't authorize upon the basis of the silence of the Scriptures. Come back to that later, if we possibly can. We've already suggested faith comes by hearing the Word of God, the Word of Christ. The Bible authorizes by what it says, not by what it doesn't say. God doesn't authorize upon the basis of the silence of the Scriptures. But we must know how God does authorize. I recognize that this model of how God authorizes takes us into the tremendously important and highly complicated field of study called biblical hermeneutics. Obviously, we do not have the time and cannot Take the time to deal with that matter as it deserves to be dealt with. But we can look at it in broad 
outlines. I want us to at least glance at the matter of Bible authority. Ascertaining Bible authority. That's what I'm concerned about. In some years gone by, many years ago, I sometimes talked about establishing Bible authority. Well, it occurred to me that's not the right way to say it. Human beings have nothing to do with establishing Bible authority. God does that. We ascertain it. I'm concerned about coming to know what it is that God authorizes, the principles by which he does authorize. And as we contemplate Bible authority, we have in mind the scriptural authority underlying our attitudes and our actions, our attitudes and our conduct. Our attitudes, our conduct is the product of our attitudes. Our actions grow out of our attitudes and relate to our obligations. Our obligations as children of God relate to one basic point, and that is simply the God-given mission of the church of the Lord, the salvation of the souls of men. Now, if we had one hour, I promise you, I could use that hour and prove that this is the mission of the church, the only mission God ever gave it, the salvation of the souls of men. And to this end, we carry the gospel. And to this end, we help the needy. And to this end, we edify, we strengthen the saints. Then with regard to these general obligations, these three, there are multitudinous specific activities authorized by Scripture, but they all tie on to this Mission, this God-given mission of the church, the salvation of the souls of men. That was the Lord's own mission in his life among men. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. That's the job he's given you and me. Our obligations relate to that. The basic obligation then is that about which I must be concerned. The general obligations that relate to the carrying out of that obligations. I must be concerned about certain specific means uh, that relate to the accomplishing of or meeting of these obligations and the accomplishing of that God-given mission. But now, as to whether or not we meet these obligations, we have no choice. But with regard to how they're going to be met, there are areas of choice. But how does the Bible authorize then with regard to what my obligations are and with regard to how we ought to meet those obligations. Now, if you'll erect that chalkboard in your mind, go up on the left-hand corner, your left-hand side, write down uh, Roman numeral number one, then spell it out in all capital letters, the word example, and we'll start right there. God authorizes by means of example. Don't even need to say approved example unless I'm just speaking accommodatively because if it is an example, then obviously it is approved because the word itself implies that. The word example means, according to the dictionary, that which is to be followed, that which is to be imitated, a pattern. If God intends for me to imitate it, then obviously it's approved. We mentioned this definition to point out then that an example is to be followed, it is to be imitated, 
An example is finding. Literally thousands of times in the last uh, 30 years especially, we've had the question raised time and time again, when is an example binding? This obviously is the wrong question. If it is an example, it is binding. If it's not binding, it's not an example. And I know what you're thinking. Brother Roy, don't you know that Brother Thomas Warren has a book entitled When is an Example Binding? But have you ever noticed the word examples in quotation marks? Of all people, he knows that's not the right question. But that's the question everybody's asking. The correct question is, when does the Bible account of an action constitute an example? Lots of records of lots of actions set out in Scripture never were intended for me to imitate them. Acts 5, for example, never was written down so that I would learn more about how to lie. In this connection, I hasten to explain the sense, then, in which we're using the word binding in relationship to examples. I have in mind that some things are binding and are thus examples in the sense that they may be done. Some things are binding in the sense that they must be done. Some are binding in the sense that they must be done. That is, these are demanded. There's nothing optional here. These facts being made crystal clear by careful study and consideration of the totality of the Bible teaching with regard to the matter at hand, the matter under consideration. Some things are binding on the other hand, and are thus examples in the sense that they may be done. That is, they are authorized, but the fact that they're authorized doesn't mean that they have to be done. Very significant distinction. For example, in 1 Corinthians 11, 24, and 25, I am commanded to observe the Lord's Supper. That's a command. I'm instructed by precept and example to observe the Supper on the first day of every week. Acts 20, verse 7, together with 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. It seems to me it takes both those verses to establish that point. There is no option here. The first day of every week in connection with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. But I have an, I have authority given by example to observe the Lord's Supper in an upper room where there are many lights. That is, this is binding in the sense that it's alright, I'm allowed to do that, I'm permitted to do that, nothing wrong with observing the supper in an upper room with the many lights or upper chamber where there are many lights. But I learned from other passages that the place is not the important thing, and I therefore conclude that the upper chamber is an optional matter, though it is authorized. Furthermore, I'm commanded to give as I have been prospered. First Corinthians 16, 2. This is a must matter. I must not fall short of giving as I have been prospered. But in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 5, I'm taught by example that I may exceed that. 
I may exceed giving as I have been prospered. There's something in the Bible about the religion of the second mile. Going beyond their power, Paul said about the Macedonian brethren. The Macedonian brethren gave of their power, yea, and beyond their power, beyond what would normally be expected of them. Did Paul refer to these brethren as an example for the brethren in Corinth? Is this an example for you and for me? Is this account of this action binding on me and upon you? And if it is binding, in what sense is it binding? Does it teach that I must upon every Lord's day give beyond my power? Or does it teach that I may, that I may give beyond my power? I'd ask Brother Warren to call out when I had 15 minutes left. And I see he decided just to walk up here when I had 15 minutes left. <laughs> Appreciate that, Brother God authorizes by means of example, but we've got to understand what example is. We've got to understand what binding is. Right quickly, let's jot down a number two. Forget the rest of it. Number two on that board. God authorizes by implication. And Brother Warren made the precise and correct distinction between inference and implication. We have been accustomed to hearing the words necessary inference when what we're talking about is simply implication. Inference, that's where the human being steps in. That's where the human mind is exercised. Logic is the science of valid inference. I must be determined to draw the conclusions that are demanded by the evidence at hand, I say the whole of anything is the sum of its parts. And that's a mathematical axiom, all right? I conclude from that then that the whole of anything is larger than any of its parts. I'm authorized to say that. But I reason that that's authorized. I have authority to say that based upon the fact that it's necessarily implied by the explicit proposition or statement. Brother Warren explained this so thoroughly that the authority behind it is not the fact that Deaver or Warren reasoned correctly in this matter, but the fact that God implied it. I have the authority to reason correctly. Oh, yes, I can make a mistake. I've made a few. But I can get it right. There are some things that I know, and I know that I can know. And when somebody says, but you can't really know anything, I simply ask, are you sure about that? Another good response is, Prove it to me. <clears throat> Just prove it to me. God authorizes by implication. Go to number three. God authorizes by direct statement. I do not at all write down the word command here. It just will not do the job. You're working in an area that would be properly called direct statements, one of which is command. And I set out in the text there an analysis of the kinds of statements from the viewpoint of the Greek New Testament where it is so clear and plain and forceful, where we're dealing with four different moods and eleven different kinds of statements, one of which is this command, and I'm not willing to take one and forget the other ten. It just doesn't cover the situation simply to say command. But from there on, on that point, you're on your own. Study it real carefully. It's so, so important. 
Direct statement. God authorizes by expediency. And we need the three days and nights to study expediency. And we got less than 15 minutes. <laughs> God authorizes by means of expediency. There is no obligation. There is no expediency where there is no obligation. I have no right to try to prove or to justify thus and so simply by calling it an expedient. First of all, I've got to establish the obligation. And then in conjunction with the carrying out of that obligation, there will be this area of expediency. But expediency involves, first of all, obligation. So far as concerns a congregation, it involves uh, the authority of an eldership. Always in expedient, there is the notion of advantage. There's no advantage in you, whatever you call it, it's not expedient. There's a difference in optionals and expedience. All expedients are optionals, but not all optionals are expedient. Under this particular circumstance, it might be expedient to buy a building to meet in. Under another set of circumstances, it might be expedient to rent a building to meet in. Now, the meeting place is not at ex a meeting place in and of itself is not an expedient. That's demanded by the obligation to assemble. But now then where? That gets into there of expediency. But there is the notion of advantage. But there's a difference in an expedient and an aid. And there again, we need a great deal of time. More than we have, obviously. But we're just suggesting things especially for further study. There's a difference in an expedient and an aid. For example, quickly, suppose we're dealing with the area of uh, moving. We can go, we can move by going, uh, we can go. God says go, okay, we can ride or we can walk. Well, walking is not an expedient to riding and riding is not an expedient to walking. These are Two different things that are identically related to the command or the obligation to go. Riding is not an expedient to walking. Walking is not an expedient to riding. Now, a walking stick when involved in this walking process could be a, an expedient to walking. But one of these coordinates is not an expedient to the other coordinate. A hearing aid would be an expedient to hearing when employed in the hearing process. Glasses would be an expedient to seeing, but hearing's not an expedient to seeing. Seeing's not an expedient to hearing. These are coordinates identically related to the area of uh, perception. So there's a difference in an aid, a thing that is employed in the accomplishing of God's worship or God's work is an aid. An expedient is authorized. Brother Warren has tried to direct our attention to a, a point that really needs to be corrected in an old restoration slogan, for example, in matters of faith unity and opinions liberty. Well, that's not exactly accurate, you know, because opinions get you into the area of expediency, and in expediency there is liberty, but if it's an expedient, it's a matter of faith. God authorized. God doesn't demand 
unity in those areas of expediency that are still within the confines of faith. If it is biblical expedient, then it is a matter of faith. So his correction there is, I don't know whether anybody's reading it or not, but it's true, in matters of obligation, unity. In matters of expediency, liberty. But in all things, charity. God commands us to sing. That's that which is authorized. What we're saying in all of this simply is, there's no authority for the mechanical instrument of music. Do I have anything there's a section in the book on the silence of the scriptures. John, where are you? Can I have ten minutes for me? <laughs> no, John's going to need all he can get, too. God doesn't authorize by the silence of the scriptures. Study carefully Hebrews seven fourteen. Before the Lord himself, if he had desired to do so, before the Lord could have served, as a high priest, according to the Mosaic system, the law itself would have to have been changed because the law didn't authorize anybody to, to serve from the tribe of Judah. And when the Hebrew or the writer of the book of Hebrews referred to it, he simply says, as to which tribe Moses said nothing. That's all there is to it. Wasn't any authority for it. You mark it down before that can ever be. Unity. Well, the word ought to be union. Before that can ever be any union between churches of Christ and uh, so-called independent Christian churches, there's going to have to be a change in the law. God's law. And it's not about to change. Okay. <laughs>